Hello, this is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Associate Director of Education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethics and principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mignetta Liu, who is a professor and research chair in the Department of Oncology, a consultant in Precision Oncology Consulting Service of the Department of Oncology, a consultant in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, the Associate Medical Director in the Department of Development, and the Medical Director of Outpatient Practice Specialty Collaborations and Contracts. She practices within the area of breast and medical oncology, and her research interests include looking at circulating biomarkers for the early detection and treatment of cancer. My second guest today is Dr. Myra Wick, who is a consultant and associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Clinical Genomics at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Dr. Wick's clinical practice focuses on prenatal genetics and the genetics of hereditary cancer syndromes, particularly those associated with gynecologic cancers. Research interests include the genetics of hypoplastic left heart syndrome and prenatal molecular diagnostics, including perinatal whole genome sequencing. Today, our topic is cell-free DNA implications in practice. Thank you both for being here. I was absolutely intrigued by this topic. I think I recall my medical school education thinking DNA belongs in the cell, but so does RNA. And I think unless you've been under a rock or living on Mars, we all know now that RNA is actually in the COVID vaccine. So RNA can live outside of a cell. And obviously I'm gonna learn today a lot about how DNA lives outside of the cell. So with that, I'd like to open it up for both of you to talk a little bit about cell-free DNA, what it is, how we use it. And initially, I'd like to focus on sort of the clinical aspects of cell-free DNA, what you are doing with it in terms of your practices. And then I would like to learn more about cell-free DNA and research applications and where we are now and what we can look for in the future. Myra, do you want to start us off? Sure. So, um, Dr. Duprat, you're correct. DNA does belong in the, the cell nucleus, but cells break down. And as cells break down, the DNA and other cell parts are, are released. DNA can be released into the bloodstream. One of the interesting things is that when a woman is pregnant, the placenta also releases fragments of the cell and DNA into the mother's bloodstream. So we have 
what we call cell-free DNA that's floating around in our bloodstream that we have now learned can be very, very useful for a variety of applications in both the clinical and research setting. So Myra, let me ask a question. When a woman's pregnant, there's cell-free DNA. When, would that be DNA that's not there in her bloodstream when she's not pregnant? Yes, there's a, a mixture of, of cell-free DNA. Most of it's from her, but there's a fraction of it that's actually from the placenta. And the placental DNA almost always represents the genetics of the baby or the fetus. So there is extra DNA in her bloodstream when she's pregnant. So from a practical standpoint, you know, what I remember about my OB rotations and, and pregnancy is that often amniocentesis would be required at various times in, in women who are pregnant, uh, looking for diseases or because of concerns, for instance, advanced maternal age. Is it possible to look at women's bloodstream now in place of amniocentesis? It is possible and we use it for a screening test. We don't view it as a replacement. It's a test that has a, a high detection rate, but there's also a false positive rate. So if we get a result that's abnormal in the prenatal setting, we need to verify that result. The positive predictive value varies depending on mom's age. And so we could get an abnormal result that represents a fetus that's normal. And there are a couple of rare situations too, and we can talk about that later, where we could get an abnormal result that might not represent the genetics of the fetus. So we always need to back up our cell-free DNA testing in the prenatal setting with a kind of our gold standard test, which is either a CVS or an amniel. Great. Mineta? What are you doing within your practice with cell-free DNA and how is that useful? Because we'll go back to Myra to talk more about the clinical applications, but let's move on. I suspect you're probably not doing much with prenatal genetics and, and placental blood if you're working in the breast clinic. No. So interestingly enough, Denise, what we're looking for is DNA that we don't want, right? It's DNA coming from tumor cells. So it's interesting because what Myra works on uh, is genetics, what we're born with or what the fetus is born with and looking for things that are sort of normal in the blood. What in cancer we're looking for is DNA that's coming from a tumor. So as tumors evolve in our bodies, they are collecting DNA changes. So we have what we're born with and those changes can accumulate and then lead to a development of a tumor. These tumor cells can secrete or push DNA into the bloodstream or the DNA uh, as the cancer cells uh, break down, just that's a normal life cycle of a cell, the DNA spills into the bloodstream. I look at the bloodstream like a cauldron, which is why I've been so fascinated by it. There's so many different factors there. There's our normal, what we were born with DNA, and then tumor DNA, the potential for fetal DNA, viral DNA. So it is a cauldron. So as technologies have improved over the past 10 years or so for cell-free DNA, we've learned from the prenatal world how to detect these small amounts. And now we have uh, evolved these technologies to look for tumor-specific material. So the course of development in cancer has been looking in advanced cancer first because we know that there's cancer there in the body. Uh, we can see it, right, on scans. Sometimes we can feel it. And then if we can detect it in the blood, we can actually track through the blood whether a therapy is working or not as the amount of material goes down. 
Uh, and that can happen in advance of a tumor actually shrinking. So one could argue because drawing blood is perhaps easier, certainly less time consuming than doing a scan for an individual patient. It may be also more cost effective. Now, as we've sort of fast forwarded, as technology improves, we can detect even smaller amounts of tumor material in the blood. We've actually brought cell-free DNA testing to early cancer detection. Wow. So there's a test that has been recently commercially brought up. It's not FDA approved yet. Mayo Clinic was very involved in the research and the validation for those tests. I'm happy to talk about that later. But we now run the spectrum, right, from following and potentially directing treatment in advanced cancer, using that in early stage cancer to refine and perhaps define our therapies based on the alterations we find in the bloodstream. Now, even to detecting cancer before anyone feels it or perhaps can even see it to identify cancers at their earliest stages where we would hope that intervention will lead to more cures. Wonderful. All right, we're gonna come back to you. So Myra, you talked about prenatal. And I think for most of us, and I do adult medicine, so my prenatal knowledge base, and you talked about hypoplastic left heart, which of course is a catastrophic diagnosis in fetuses and in neonates. So what are the kind of conditions and how are you applying these prenatal genetic testing and cell-free DNA in terms of the practical aspects for clinical care of of moms and uh, diagnoses for fetuses? Yeah, so um, the test was really developed initially as a screening tool for Down syndrome. And the reason for that is that Down syndrome or trisomy 21 is one of the most common genetic conditions that we see in an ongoing pregnancy. And in actuality, um, if you're looking at aneuploidy or, or increased numbers of chromosomes in a fetus or in a baby, there are really only three aneuploidies that not counting sex chromosome conditions, but three aneuploidies that we see in an ongoing pregnancy. And those are trisomies 13, 18, and 21. And so in the clinical realm, the test was initially developed to screen for Down syndrome or trisomy 21. And then along came screening for trisomy 13 and 18. So those are our main clinical applications. Of course, we can also detect Y-DNA in maternal bloodstream. And if we presume that if we find Y-DNA in mom's bloodstream, it's because she's carrying a male fetus. And so the screening test has actually become a very popular way for women to have gender reveal parties very early in pregnancy. Uh, We can do the testing for the most part as early as 10 weeks, which means that a woman can get a result back within about a week and oftentimes know by 11 weeks the gender of her fetus, which is several weeks earlier than we would be able to have information about fetal gender with an ultrasound examination. Wow. Clinically right now, the test is screening, as I said, for trisomies 13, 18, 21, and then the sex chromosome aneuploidies are also part of that. So detection for Turner syndrome, which is a female with just one X chromosome, there can be some congenital heart defects um, along with that. So that's an important one to know about. There are a couple of others that are a little bit more controversial. Oftentimes we we wouldn't be able to see anything prenatally. And that's Kleinfelder syndrome, which is a male with um, two X's and a Y or males with two Y's and an X. We can also pick up 
females with triple X. And, and those are things that are just a little bit more controversial because we might not necessarily need to know about that in the prenatal setting. So those are the current clinical applications. And I, I'll say more later about what's on the horizon and, and what are some possible research directions. So Myra, I think you bring up a really interesting controversy, not so much the gender reveal, but some of the issues, for instance, with Downs, because I would anticipate that you work closely with some of the genetic counselors, Mm -hmm. because these have got to be difficult conversations sometimes with parents. And can you talk a little bit about the interaction and your involvement with genetic counselors with prenatal counseling? Because clearly, as we start to get into some of the genetic issues in unborn children, there may be challenges for families as you identify genetic abnormalities that raise questions for them. How does that work in your practice? Great question. Um, And we're very, very fortunate here to have two genetic counselors and a genetic counseling assistant that work with us. So we try to make sure that patients who are wanting cell-free DNA screening have the opportunity to meet with one of the geneticists or genetic counselors at the time that the test is being ordered. We, we want to make sure that the patients know what, what they're getting into, if you will. So we'll have a patient come in and say, oh, hey, you know, I want that test that tells me my baby's gender. And then that's the point where we back up and say, okay, the test was designed really to screen for aneuploidy. And do you know what that is? And what are the implications of that? And making sure that the patient has a good understanding of what kind of information she and her partner might be getting from the testing. It's not simply a a gender reveal, if you will, test. There might be information there that they weren't expecting to get or weren't anticipating. On the other end of the spectrum, it's also important that patients know that this test is not screening for everything and not looking at the baby's chromosomes directly and not looking at all of the chromosomes or screening for chromosome problems for all the chromosomes. So if a patient comes in requesting that type of information, then we're going to talk to her about doing an invasive test like CBS or amnio, where we have a more comprehensive view of the chromosomes. And that kind of testing, um, an invasive test would be more appropriate if you have a family where there's a known genetic disorder that would be missed most likely by the cell-free DNA screen. Our genetic counselors are oftentimes involved before the test is even ordered. And then certainly if there's any type of abnormality on that screening test, patient is referred either to one of the genetic counselors or to myself for further discussion of what are the next steps. Great. Thank you for that discussion. I think that's really important for everyone to know that this isn't a walk-in and I want that test for gender because sometimes you do get more than you ask for. Um, So thank you for clarifying that because my involvement early on in these mini-series and also as an education ambassador for genetics, I think it's important that people recognize that this isn't the answer to everything we sometimes find things we aren't expecting and it can't answer 100% of everything. So it's challenging. 
we can talk about probabilities sometimes, and, and that's true with many adult cancers as well. So Minetta, you mentioned that C word, as my patients sometimes call it, in a broad way, cancer. So is the cell-free DNA most useful with particular kinds of cancers? And, you know, we talk about stage, we talk about type of cancer, we talk about my patients will often use the word severity of cancer. You know, it's, it's not just stage, but it's a, a class of cancer, one through four. And so are there particular cancers that the cell-free DNA is most useful for, either currently for following or potentially for early detection? So that's a loaded question. Uh, so I'm gonna provide a little bit of clarification as well. What Myra was talking about is genetics. So that's the DNA of what we're born with. In cancer, what we're focused on is genomics, which is the coding material or the DNA, again, from a tumor. So it's not what we're born with. So there's, there are two different things that we're looking at, and we do look at it in different ways. The way I think about prenatal testing as it stands now, although it's going to start you know, advancing at rocket speed, I think Myra is going to talk about that, is currently, if you imagine looking at a page in a book, Currently, prenatal testing is like looking at the paragraph, like looking at the margins, right, and the formatting of that page. What we do in genomics now we have the ability to do is to look at every letter on that page and to see if they're misspellings. And those misspellings could be changes from what we're born with to what makes a tumor. They're called mutations. There's also rearranging words or rearranging pieces of chromosomes. So there are a lot of alterations or changes that make a normal cell into a tumor cell. And so what we're looking for in cancer are those differences. So we know they exist in cancer cells. And now we know that that DNA can spill into the bloodstream from a tumor cell. And we're looking for tumor specific alterations in the blood that aren't what we were normally born with. So different tumors will shed their DNA into the blood to a different extent. So to answer your question about are certain cancers more likely to have detectable DNA, yes, because there are different shedders. We also know that the amount of DNA that ends up in the bloodstream is very much a function of how much tumor there is in the body, which is tumor burden. So more advanced stages of cancer, you talked about stage one, two, three, four, or metastatic disease, advanced disease, that we're more likely to find the tumor DNA in the bloodstream in the more advanced stages of cancer. But as technologies have improved, we can detect lesser and lesser amounts of tumor DNA in the blood. So that's how we've been able to move from advanced cancer to early stage disease to now even screening for cancer at its earliest stages. So we all know about the Cologuard test. Yeah. And so Minetta, is that cell-free DNA with Cologuard? Is that what we're looking for? It is looking at cell-free DNA. So what we're focused on here is the cell-free DNA in the blood. But cell-free DNA simply means the DNA left the cell and it's in some space. So it could be detected in the stool, can be detected in urine, it can be detected in Pleural fluid, meaning fluid that builds up around the lung, ascites, which is fluid that can build up in the belly. So any fluid we can, if we can find the DNA in there, we can test in the same way. Great. So let's talk about where we are in terms of research. What is on the horizon? Where are we going to be in, you know, uh, Mayo's motto is bold and forward. And it sounds like cell-free DNA for both prenatal 
diagnosis where the genes we got are the genes we got before the epigenetics and where we live and what we eat and whether we exercise starts to mutate our genes. And before we get tumors and start to shed things in our bloodstream, where are we going to be, uh, Myra? Wh what does the future look like? Granted, we none of us have crystal balls, but where are we going to be able to go, do you think, with cell-free DNA in the future? So there are already some commercial laboratories that are offering cell-free DNA screening for a specific situation. So for example, skeletal dysplasias like osteogenesis imperfecta is something that we can often see on a prenatal ultrasound. We see something unusual about the baby's bones and we think it's a skeletal dysplasia and we know which genes are involved and we can offer testing, but sometimes moms don't want that invasive testing. They don't want the amnio to collect the baby's DNA so that we can do that testing. And there are some laboratories that have set up cell-free DNA tests that are trying to allow for that detection in the cell-free DNA realm. Those tests haven't been approved by some of our societies, like the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists and the American College of Medical Genetics. So those tests are, are there, and I think we'll use them probably more in the future as, as more validation is done and, and we know exactly how well those tests are performing. The, the major problem with those tests is that some of those conditions are so rare that it's really hard for the laboratories to be able to tell us how well they're performing. And, you know, if we get a negative test result, what are the probabilities that the baby's still affected? We don't have that data. We don't really know how well those tests perform, but I think they are going to improve over time. So that we'll be doing more of that. Dr. Liu also alluded to whole genome and whole exome sequencing. So this is testing where the laboratory is able to use a technology called next generation sequencing and sequence either our exome, which are about 22,000 genes that we think make up the coding portion of our, our DNA, as well as whole genome, which is essentially or theoretically sequencing everything that's in our genome on the DNA side. We are actually using that technology in the prenatal setting when we do an invasive test. We're not offering it through cell-free yet, but there are laboratories that are working on it. And there are lots of technical difficulties and challenges doing that in the cell-free setting, cell-free prenatal setting. But I think we'll probably be seeing that in the future. You know, if somebody had told me 10 years ago, um, you're going to be offering prenatal whole exome in 2020, I, I would have laughed at them. So, you know, who knows what kind of technologies we're going to see evolving in the next five to 10 years. It's really been moving very, very quickly. It's very exciting and challenging, but I think we'll be seeing cell-free DNA for single gene applications and, and maybe whole exome, whole genome in the, in the future. Do you think that this early identification using cell-free DNA will allow then for early implementation of therapies in the prenatal setting. I know that the field of obstetrics is moving fast towards other things. And, and I wonder as precision medicine and precision genomic or genetic directed therapies evolve, do you think that's where we'll be 
with some of the prenatal care? Yeah, I do think we're going to see that coming. There's a group, I believe they're at UCSF, that is looking at prenatal treatment of some of the thalassemias. And there are some new treatments for spinal muscular atrophy and cystic fibrosis. And those aren't being offered in the prenatal setting yet, but we know for some of those genetic disorders that the earlier the detection and the and the earlier the treatment starts, probably the better the outcomes will be. So you can imagine that potentially moving into the prenatal arena as well. That's all exciting. As you think about as we go forward, these things that in the past we just said that this is what you inherited and the consequences and late diagnoses. And you mentioned cystic fibrosis. You know, we have started to diagnose some of these adults later in life with multiple complications of untreated, undiagnosed CF and the ability to diagnose this early and treat before complications develop can really be life-changing for many of these individuals. And that's not an uncommon disorder. I I believe the incidence is about one in 2000 live births. So this has the potential to be really amazing in terms of changing a number of people's lives. So this is not the rare, unusual disease. This is something that would be very important. Minetta, where are we going with cell-free DNA? I mean, cancer is that plague, right? We all know somebody who has it or is going to get it and breast cancer and, and my goodness, pancreatic cancer seems to be on the rise and we can look around and just look at the numbers growing. We're getting older. Everybody we know you talked about early cell-free DNA for early detection, and early treatment. What's on the horizon? So where we are right now is the use of cell-free DNA, like the liquid biopsy. I think a lot of people hear this term. And it, with a biopsy, typically a tissue biopsy, we get a sort of one-time reading. We characterize the tumor and we can find features of the tumor to direct our targeted therapies. So right now, the approvals, the clinical use for cell-free or circulating tumor DNA is to, instead of having to stick a needle in an organ or surgically manipulate it, we can draw blood. And in many patients, we will be able to identify those tumor changes and then be able to direct our treatments around it. So that's right now where it sits for approvals. Soon, I believe there will be, again, an advanced disease the ability to use these tests, we do to some level now, although it's not necessarily endorsed by guidelines to look at circulating tumor DNA over the course of time as a marker for how treatment is working. So this could be a tool to direct and monitor therapy in advanced disease. And that alone could help us better identify which treatments we're using, stop using ones that aren't working as early as possible so that individuals who are requiring cancer therapy aren't incurring side effects without benefit, right? You want to jump ship as early as you can. And you'd believe that if you're on the right therapy, that you're going to do better in extending survival as well as improving quality of life. We are now inching to early stage disease and looking for something that's now termed molecular residual disease. So imagine someone who's treated for early stage cancer whatever cancer that is, they oftentimes require surgery, maybe radiation, some form of medications, and they're done. Right now, we only know when we fail, right? We know only when people recur. We don't have a test that says, you know, there was some microscopic disease. We couldn't see it on a scan. You look great, but I can't tell you if it's there or not. 
Imagine if you had a blood test that says, you know what, we find something minute there, so you need to be on very active surveillance. Doesn't mean you're necessarily destined for cancer to come back, but that risk is so high, it's perhaps worth it to do longer therapy, medical therapy, what we call adjuvant therapy, or perhaps just more surveillance with scans. And others where it's not detected, doesn't mean, again, it's a guarantee that nothing will come back, but we know just from early studies that those patients tend to do better, right? So again, maybe they don't need as much therapy as we would otherwise give because we do really over-treat people. We're good at it. We have the drugs. We know we can do it typically safely. Uh, and we are all of a mindset usually that we want to do as much as we can to prevent something from happening later on. So that, again, would help us, help us risk stratify patients better and potentially guide therapy um, in that respect. And now, again, we're moving into early detection. So someone who doesn't have a pre-existing diagnosis of cancer, but right now our screening methods are limited to breast cancer, cervical cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, and high-risk patients, and prostate cancer as you know, one-on-one discussions with physicians and patients. But there are, Denise, you brought up pancreatic cancer. The malignancies associated with the highest rate of cancer-related deaths do not have a screening paradigm. And imagine that all the screening tests we have require you to go to a different place, have a different type of study, are done at different intervals by different people. So it's just hard enough to keep track of those four or five, depending on your gender and which one you need. Imagine, right, if we could do this in a single blood draw for multiple cancers, It doesn't replace standard screening by any means because those we have entrenched for a good reason, right? There's been so much work in the guidelines around those screening paradigms, but we're in a world now where perhaps we have another tool to add for multiple cancers. And that could help us identify people who are either have cancer, we just didn't know it. So perhaps someone gets diagnosed at stage one, minimal burden of disease as opposed to stage three, where we know that stage correlates with better outcomes. The lower the stage, the better the survival. So that in and of itself could be a benefit. We have to prove all of this, right? Just because we have a tool, we don't know exactly how to use it. We're sort of supposing based on the data that we have. Imagine if you have a blood test that says, you know, there's a signal of cancer. We've done every workup possible and we can't find the cancer. Perhaps that's stratifying that individual, just like we do germline testing for, say, BRCA1, BRCA2, other inherited alterations for risk. Maybe this is defining risk in a different way to help better direct our prevention strategies, right? Maybe those people could prevent the ultimate development of cancer with the right strategy. So we're, we're sort of working through how we can use these tests in true clinical practice. We know that the evidence is there that we should be looking, (laughs) and now it's incumbent on us in the clinic and those of us trying to translate new tests into the clinic to figure out the right way to use this with the right guardrails. It all sounds fascinating. I mean, I think we all know, in particular in my adult practice, the patient who's had a tumor, been radiated, and there's still something there, and, and we think it's probably scar tissue, but we continue to radiate them until they have mesenteric ischemia, and that lump never changes, and is a tumor, is it not, or they get a big debulking surgery, and well, we don't know if there's residual tumor or not, but we're going to give you highly toxic adjuvant therapy for a while, just in case there's microscopic spread we don't see. So I want to thank both Drs. Myra Wick and Dr. Miera Liu today for coming and talking on our Mayo Clinic mini-series. 
The topic today has been cell-free DNA, clinical implications. This is tremendously exciting and really is, again, for me, a, a little bit of the science geek, an example of translational medicine. You know, bench to bedside, how we are taking new technology and really applying it to the clinical care of patients. We're already doing many things, but we're just at the horizon and it looks tremendously exciting going forward to what we have to offer the yet unborn child to basically anyone from birth to towards the end of their life with these new technologies for making both diagnosis and also guiding treatment to a better life. Thank you both so much for participating in our Mayo Clinic Talks. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Have a wonderful day and thank you. Thank you.